Last week I began by picking on the uh, Roman Catholic Church a little bit. It's okay, they deserve it. I showed you how the reformers identified the Roman church with the whore of Babylon in Revelation 17, and I showed you how they arrived at that identification and that conclusion from this text. I don't think they were wrong when they saw in the Babylonian harlot of Revelation 17 the Roman Catholic Church of their day with all of her wealth and power and blasphemies and idolatries and the way that she persecuted the true saints of God. But I don't want to give the impression that the Catholic Church is the only historic manifestation of the Babylonian harlot. That's not the way the visions of Revelation work. The whore of Babylon stands in Revelation as the immoral, idolatrous counterfeit to the pure and holy bride of Christ which is the church. In other words, she's the false church. She's the church that is indistinct from the surrounding Babylonian culture, and she's in league with the beast. In other words, just as the bride, which is the true church, begets children of righteousness who follow the lamb wherever he goes, even unto death, So the harlot, that is the false church, begets children of iniquity who follow the beast and take his mark unto everlasting destruction. So understood in this way, the Catholic church is not the only church given over to harlotry. Many Protestant churches share these qualities as well. They are indistinct from Babylon. That is the worldly, immoral, idolatrous world system. And they are in league with the beast. That is the satanically inspired and empowered state. So let's not give into our Catholic bashing Protestant tendencies this morning and fail to take a long hard look into the mirror of the word to see if we might not bear some of these harlot-like characteristics as well. And Romans chapter 16 is helping us to do just that, because in this chapter, underneath and behind all of its names and all of its greetings, we find a church, a true church At Rome, a church with all of the power and beauty of its newborn apostolic simplicity, a church devoid of all of the unnecessary, even idolatrous baggage placed upon her by both Catholic and Protestant alike. This original true apostolic church at Rome was a church that the Apostle Paul loved and admired. A church with whom he wanted to partner in the ministry of the gospel. A church that he wanted to visit, that he might be refreshed in their fellowship. A church that he hoped would send him off to Spain and to the eastern, or western rather, reaches of the Roman Empire to expand the gospel in the kingdom where Christ had never been named. In other words, the church of Romans 16 is a church that First Baptist Nixa ought to emulate. 
This is what makes the greetings of this chapter an invaluable passage of Scripture because in it we find seven characteristics worth imitating if we at First Baptist Nixa are to be a strong, biblical, healthy church. That is, if we are to be the true church at Nixa. Last week, we covered the first two of those characteristics. First, we saw that the true Roman church had a simple structure and simple worship. It was comprised of a closely connected network of house churches led by a shared eldership, served by a shared diaconate. There were no popes, there were no cardinals, no archbishops or bishops, They had a simple form of worship, which we saw in Justin Martyr, a second century church father, in his first apology written around 155 AD. We saw that the Roman church gathered together every Lord's Day to hear the word read and to hear the word preached, to pray together and to take the Lord's Supper and to receive an offering for the poor who were among them. The original apostolic Roman church was a simple church with a simple structure and a simple form of worship. But it was, as we will see today, powerful and effective in preparing its members to live and to die in faithfulness to Christ. Secondly, we saw that the church was filled with worthy women. It struck a biblical complementarian balance between feminism on the one hand and patriarchalism on the other. The women of the church were actively involved in the ministry of the gospel, yet without violating Paul's clear commands for male headship in both the home, Ephesians chapter 5, and in the church, which is the household of God, 1 Timothy chapter 2. We come now to the third characteristic that marked the true church at Rome. They were characterized by a courageous conviction. This was a church that was willing to live and to suffer and to die for the sake of Christ. And I draw this point from three different sources. First, it comes from the text of Romans 16 itself. Look with me at verse 3. Paul says, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, and note the next phrase, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Now, it's not entirely clear when Prisca and Aquila risked their necks for Paul's life. It could have been uh, in Corinth. When Paul spent 18 months living and working with them as they ministered together the gospel in that region. We can read about that in Acts chapter 18. Or it could have been in Ephesus where Paul had taken Prisca and Aquila after Corinth. And where his ministry had provoked a violent riot. We can read about that in Acts chapter 19. Or it could have been at some other point altogether in Paul's ministry when they traveled together. Some event that isn't written or recorded in the book of Acts. But whatever the case, it is clear that this couple, Prisca and Aquila, or Priscilla and Aquila, were willing to put their life on the line for the sake of the gospel. Now look at verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. 
Now, I argued last week that Junia is a woman, that she was the wife of Andronicus, and that the two were actually missionaries from Palestine, maybe even Jerusalem, to Rome. It may have been them that originally took the gospel to Rome and planted the church there. This is based upon the fact that Junia, which is a feminine name in the Greek, is a better reading than the masculine form, and that well-known to the apostles as it is in the ESV, should rather be translated outstanding among the apostles. And that apostles is here used in Romans uh, 16.7 as it is elsewhere, particularly in 1 Corinthians, in that generic sense of one who is sent out with a message and with the authority to declare that message. And that they were in Christ before Paul which must mean that they were among the earliest converts to Christianity, which would have placed them in Palestine or Judea, somewhere between the years 30 and 32 AD. By my fellow prisoners, as Paul calls them in verse 7, Paul probably doesn't mean that they had spent time in prison together, but rather that they had both in separate places on separate occasions been imprisoned for the same reason. Namely, for the ministry of the gospel. At any rate, though, clearly this couple was also willing to risk their necks, to risk their lives for the sake of Christ. So the first source from which we can see the courageous conviction of the Roman church is from the pages of Romans itself. The second source actually comes from Paul's letter to the Philippians, written four years later after Romans was written, likely written from Rome itself, where Paul was again imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. In the letter to the Philippians, Paul informs the church that he actually rejoices in his imprisonment. He rejoices in the fact that he is in chains for the sake of the gospel. Philippians chapter 1 verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Note that, the whole imperial guard. That's the emperor's personal guard. And to all the rest... That my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, that is the church at Rome, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So not only did Paul's first Roman imprisonment lead to the evangelization of the emperor's personal guard, but it also had a dramatic effect on the Roman church. When Paul finally did arrive in Rome, it was in chains, but that didn't stop him from proclaiming the gospel. Rather, it afforded him the opportunity to declare the gospel to the very seat of Roman power. And that example of courageous conviction led to the rank and file of the Roman church speaking with the same fearless conviction as well. Finally, the third source from which we get a glimpse of the courageous conviction of the original Roman church is from church tradition. John Fox is a name from church history that you ought to know. He was a 16th century English Protestant. 
And he's best known for compiling various accounts of Christian martyrdom from throughout church history into a single volume that's officially entitled Acts and Monuments, but it's popularly known, and some of you may have a copy of this, as Fox's Book of Martyrs. Now, although John Fox cannot really be considered an objective historian, and although he got some of his dates and facts wrong, although I might add that they were probably accurate according to the information he had available at the time, yet the broad outline of what he records in his book is beyond dispute because many of the stories and accounts that he provides are, are testified to by non-Christian historians as well. For instance, his witness to the persecution of the Roman church in the year 64 AD is also recorded by the Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius. The story goes like this. On July 18th, 64 AD, a great fire erupted that burned in Rome for over a week destroying three of the 14 Roman districts and severely damaging seven more districts. Almost every Roman, that is non-Christian, historian blames Nero for setting the blaze because he had certain construction projects that he wanted to complete and there were some sectors of the city of Rome, particularly poor sectors of the city of Rome, that stood in his way. So Roman historians blame Nero for the fire of Rome. Yet, Nero, when the public outcry against him grew so strong and violent, he sought for a scapegoat, and he found it in this small church of believers at Rome, a sect, according to Suetonius, given to a new and mischievous superstition, namely that they believed that a Galilean carpenter was the very son of God. And in order to sate public anger, Nero slaughtered many of the Roman church, and he did so in the most brutal and grotesque of ways. Fox records in his Book of Martyrs, This dreadful conflagration, that is fire, continued for nine days when Nero, finding that his conduct was greatly blamed and a severe odium cast upon him, determined to lay the whole upon the Christians at once to excuse himself and to have an opportunity of glutting his sight with new cruelties. This was the occasion of the first persecution, and the barbarities exercised on Christians were such as even excited the commiseration of the Romans themselves. In other words, even the non-Christian Romans were horrified at what Nero was doing to the church. Nero even refined upon cruelty and contrived all manner of punishments for the Christians that the most infernal imagination could design. In particular, he had some sewed up in the skins of wild beasts and then worried by dogs till they expired. And others he dressed in shirts made of stiff wax and fixed to axle trees and set on fire in his gardens in order to illuminate them. Question. Who were these faithful brothers and sisters who were sewn into the skins of wild beasts and thrown to the dogs until they were ripped to shreds? And and who were these faithful 
brothers and sisters who were covered in wax and then stuck up on poles and set on fire so that people could see as they walked along the gardens of Nero. They're these people in Romans chapter 16. Many of the names mentioned here in this chapter, ordinary believers, men and women, a simple church with a simple structure and a simple worship, yet possessed of a courageous conviction that enabled them to suffer, to live, and to die in faithfulness to the name of Christ. Fourth, the next characteristic that marked the true church at Rome was a home-centered hospitality. This characteristic, of course, grows naturally out of the first, namely that the Roman church was a closely connected network of house churches. In that first point last week, I was focused upon the simplicity, the beauty of that original church structure. Now, in this fourth point, I'm focusing upon the the mindset that made that structure possible. In other words, in order to have house churches... You have to have people willing to host the members of the church in their home. You have to have hospitable people in order to have churches in houses. And as I mentioned last week, the church at Rome had at least three and maybe as many as five or even more house churches. Look at verse three, greet Prisca and Aquila, verse five, and greet also the church in their home. Verse 14, greet a syncretist, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. That is the brothers who gather with them. Verse 15, greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are gathered with them. And then Paul also mentions the households of Aristobulus, verse 10, and Narcissus, verse 11, both of which are probably references to churches that met in their homes. Additionally, Paul says in verse 13, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well, which likely means that on some occasion, Rufus's mother had provided Paul with such a degree of hospitality that it made an indelible impression upon him. He considered Rufus's mother to be like his own second mother. Hospitality was a crucial characteristic of the early church, particularly because there were no church buildings where churches could gather, and there were few safe lodging places where traveling Christians could stay. It's for this reason that hospitality, as a, as a gift, a grace of the Spirit, is repeatedly enjoined upon the New Testament church. Romans 12, Hebrews 13, 1 Peter 4. Hospitality is a qualification for those who would be elders of the church. But hospitality is not merely a cultural phenomenon. As if in our day, now that we have church buildings and cheap hotels, hospitality were no longer needed. I contend that the fellowship of the saints cannot exist to the degree that the New Testament describes apart from the opening of our homes and the sharing of meals amongst the members of the church. I think that's the apostolic pattern to be observed throughout the age, whether we have church buildings or not. I base this upon passages like Acts chapter 2, 
where we see the very first church in Jerusalem, though there was initially a place where the church could all gather together. Acts 5.12 says that the first church would gather together in the portico of Solomon in the temple court. Yet, Acts 2.42 says that they still regularly gathered together in one another's homes. Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and day by day attending the temple together. That's where the apostles were teaching. And breaking bread in their homes. They received their word with glad and the, the word with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Listen to me, First Baptist Nixa. This church needs both. We need to gather together for worship and the word. And we need to gather in homes for the fellowship and the breaking of bread. True New Testament life, communal life, church life demands both. It needs corporate worship and it needs communal fellowship. I doubt very seriously whether you can truly know Pray for, fellowship with, exhort, encourage, admonish. In other words, love in the New Testament sense. Someone that you've never spent time with outside of a Sunday morning. I don't think it's possible. Someone that you never share a meal with. Someone that you never have into your home. If we want to be a strong, healthy, biblical, true church, like the original church at Rome... We must take home-centered hospitality seriously. And I am aware that I sound like a broken record on this front. I'm forever exhorting you to get together in one another's homes. But it's because it's so vital and it's because it doesn't come naturally to us. You want to know what's natural? What's natural is going home at the end of the day, opening up your garage door, driving your car in and closing the door, and you never step foot outside of your house again, and nobody ever steps steps foot into your house. That's what's normal. That's what's natural. That's not New Testament Christianity. It's vital, and it's wonderful. There is a depth of intimacy and fellowship around the dinner table that is simply unavailable anywhere else. So make it a priority. Find someone in this church that you don't know very well and invite them over. Break bread together and I promise you, you'll be blessed. And you'll develop the kind of relationships that you need in order to live and to die in faithfulness to Christ. Fifth, and following closely upon the last point, the true church at Rome was characterized by an ardent affection for one another. This was an affection born not out of sitting across from one another in a sanctuary for an hour a week. It was born out of a shared faith, a shared life, a shared experience of grace, a shared conviction of the truth. The true church at Rome was a church that loved one another deeply and intimately. And this is displayed in a couple of ways in this passage. First, I think it's explicit in the language that Paul uses on several occasions throughout this passage. 
Three times, Paul describes someone as beloved. Now, Paul's not used to throwing words away. If he says someone's beloved, he means, I love them. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Now, I grant that this is speaking of people that Paul loved, but doesn't it stand to reason that the very character that that caused Paul to love and cherish them so much would have caused the other Christians in Rome to love and cherish them as well? These are people who are beloved in Christ. Clearly, there's an affection that exists among the members of the Roman church such that they are, they're able to meet in one another's homes. They're able to fellowship with one another. They're able to live life together. But second, there's the matter of that final exhortation in verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, what's that all about? Clearly, they didn't live in the COVID era. The the holy kiss was a sign of affection used by many of the churches in the first century. It comes up in 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 13, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Peter 5. It's all over the place. This was a this was a common way of expressing affection in the Roman culture of the first century. In the ancient world, especially in Judaism, the kiss was a standard form of greeting. And generally, believe it or not, men kissed men and women kissed women. You'll recall that Judas greeted Jesus with a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane. That wasn't out of the ordinary. The kiss of greeting was a culturally conditioned sign of affection, And it still is in some cultures around the world. One of the strangest things for me when I first started going to Cuba is that they're kissing all the time. Made me very uncomfortable. Still does. Now, obviously in our culture, it's not the custom anymore. And if some of you men go around trying to kiss other men, you'll likely be shown the door post-haste. So the proper application of Romans 16, 16 is not that we should act in a way that wouldn't be recognized as real and appropriate affection in our culture. Rather, it's to ask, how does our culture express holy affection for one another such that strangers who come into our midst would say, man, those people know and love one another. Not in a weird way, in a holy way. Hugs, handshakes, whatever it may be. The point Paul is making is that such physical outward signs of holy affection ought to mark the assembly of the saints. By this, will all men know that you're my disciples? If you what? Love one another. And as we've seen, love marked the true church at Rome. Sixth, the true church at Rome was marked by a demographic diversity. Now, how do we know this when all we've got are a list of names? How do we know that they're from different ethnicities and socioeconomic classes? Well, actually, the names reveal a great deal. In the ancient world, different 
ethnic socioeconomic classes tended to use different kinds of names. And by piecing together information we have from from other ancient sources like literature and inscriptions and documents and that sort of thing, New Testament scholars have been able to conclude that, number one, the majority of the names in Romans 16 are Gentile names, though there are several Jewish names on the list. So it's a mixed ethnicity church, majority Gentile, minority Jew. And number two, that the majority of the names on this list belong either to slaves or to former slaves who are known as freedmen or to their children, though there's also the names of some wealthy members as well. So it's majority poor, minority rich. Now, as far as the ethnic diversity of the church, it's fairly easy to pick out the Jewish names in this list. For instance, we know that Prisca and Aquila were Jews. Mary was likely a Jew. Andronicus and Junia were probably Jews if they were in Christ before Paul. Aristobulus was a Jew, though his household may have included many Gentiles. Paul refers to Herodian as his kinsman. Here's something interesting. Rufus, verse 11 not verse 11, verse 13. Rufus is probably the same Rufus mentioned by Mark in Mark 15, 21, who is the son of Simon the Cyrene, who carried the cross of Jesus on the way to Golgotha. Now, why do we think that? It's because Mark is the only evangelist to mention Rufus by name, and because Rufus would have been known to the Roman church. You remember that Mark wrote for the church at Rome, and was in Rome when he authored that gospel. So those are the Jewish names. The whole rest of them are Gentile. And so the Roman church was comprised of a Gentile majority with a sizable Jewish minority. Then as to socioeconomic diversity, uh, Prisca and Aquila were likely wealthy. They were wealthy enough to travel extensively and to host a church in their home. Andronicus was wealthy, uh, but his household would have included both family who were wealthy and servants who were not. The same would have been true of the household of Narcissus, verse 11. The two house churches mentioned in verses 14 and 15 uh, would need a home big enough to accommodate a sizable gathering of believers. And the rest were probably slaves and freedmen on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. So here's the point. It would appear just from the list of names, that the composition of the Roman church mirrored that of the composition of Roman society. And I think that's instructive, and I think it's worth emulating. I think the church ought to intentionally mirror the society society in which it's planted. It's instructive. It's worth imitating, but it's also counterintuitive, and it's uncomfortable. We don't naturally gravitate towards people who are different from us. We naturally gravitate towards people of our own kind. In fact, this natural propensity to segregate along ethnic or socioeconomic lines has been codified in a principle of church growth. The experts who tell you how to grow a church, they'll say, what you need to do is is abide by what's known as the homogenous unit principle. 
In other words, the theory goes that rather than resist this natural tendency to segregate by ethnic or socioeconomic lines, the church should embrace that for the sake of evangelism. In other words, if you want to reach a particular demographic, you need to plant a church that caters to that particular demographic. Thus, if a town has a white population, a black population, and a Latino population, what do you do? You plant a white church, a black church, and a Latino church. If, if a town has an upper-class, white-collar population and a middle-lower-class, blue-collar population, then you plant two churches, one that caters to the professional tastes of the upper-class and one that caters to the more blue-collar tastes of the middle-lower-class. If you have within your church people that prefer a more traditional style of worship and others that prefer a more contemporary style of worship, what do you do? You segregate into two services so that you can, you can have people and, and give them what they want without them ever having to bear the fruit of the Spirit and interact with one another with people who are different from them. The homogenous unit principle takes its cues from the world of sociology and marketing rather than the Bible. In fact, it's a denial of the gospel. Not only does it assume that it's easier for people to be converted and to grow in the soil of their own cultural preferences as if a person's opposition to the gospel were sociological rather than theological, as though conversion and sanctification were merely an act of human will rather than a work of divine grace, but it also subverts the fundamental aim of the gospel, which is to create out of the multi-ethnic, multi-cultural milieu of fallen humanity, one new people with a common faith and a common experience of regeneration, a common belief and trust in Jesus and a common indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The point of the church is not to erase or ignore ethnic and cultural identities. Rather, it's to transcend them and to find unity in the midst of diversity, a unity that is founded upon Christ rather than the culture. So you tell me what kind of church images forth the gospel and brings glory to Christ. The church where everyone looks alike and talks alike and comes from the same place and eats the same kinds of food and works the same kinds of job and enjoys the same kind of recreation and votes in the same kind of way. In other words, a group of people that you would hang out with anyway, even if you weren't a Christian. Does that glorify Jesus? Or the church where people with different skin, different cultures, different jobs, different tastes, different backgrounds, different preferences, who otherwise would never choose to fellowship with one another, transcend those differences because of a shared faith in Christ, a shared experience of grace, and a shared passion to grow in and to glorify Jesus. Which church do you think Jesus died to form? Which church do you think is stronger and healthier and truer? And which church do you think First Baptist Nixa ought to strive to be? Heterogeneity. That is a church comprised of different people. Is not easy. And it's not natural. Homogeneity. A church comprised of sameness. Is easy and natural. But the church is not called to be a natural people. We're called to be a supernatural people. A people who would not exist but for the grace of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we could spend a lot longer on this point, And there are 
a ton of applications that we'll unpack next week and connect. But let me end this point by reading these words from John Stott. He says, It is, of course, a fact that people like to worship with their own kith and kin and with their own kind, as experts in church growth remind us. And it it may be necessary to acquiesce in different congregations according to language, which is the most formidable, formidable barrier of all. But heterogeneity, that is differentness, is of the essence of the church, since it is the one and only community in the world in which Christ has broken down all dividing walls. The vision we have been given of the church triumphant is of a company drawn from every nation, tribe, people, and language, who are all singing God's praises in unison. So we must declare that a homogenous church, that is, a church where everybody looks, talks, thinks the same, is a defective church, which must work penitently and perseveringly towards heterogeneity, that is, unity in diversity. The seventh and final mark of the true church is member ministry. One of the aspects of this passage that strikes me is the number of times Paul mentions ordinary members involved in the ministry of the gospel, working hard, in fact, in the ministry of the gospel. Mary, verse 6, Urbanus, verse 9, Trephena and Trephosa, verse 12, Persis, verse 12. In addition to that, you have Prisca and Aquila, who were well-known in the ministry. Andronicus and Junia were evidently missionaries to Rome. Throw in those who were hosting house churches, and the picture emerges of a people who are active in the ministry of the gospel. See, the true church is a church where the members do not passively sit back and merely receive the ministry of a professional priesthood, but a church where the members are the ministers, actively engaged in the work of the gospel. In a true church, the leaders of the church, the elders and the deacons, they're not separate from the members. They're not imposed upon the church from outside, from a hierarchy of archbishops or bishops. In a true church, the elders and the deacons are members, specially gifted and called to lead, teach, and serve the body of Christ. And their role is not to perform ministry for the church on behalf of the church. They're not hired hands. Rather, their role is to lead and equip the entire church to perform the work of the ministry. For every member of the true church, as we saw in Romans chapter 12, is indwelt and gifted by the Spirit to minister in the name of Christ. So what manner of ministry do you suppose Mary performed? Verse 6. Or what about Urbanus or Trephena and Trephosa? What were they doing as they were working hard in the ministry of the gospel? Or what about any of the other names listed in this passage? Well, I don't know for sure, but I'd be willing to bet that their work was directly connected with the spiritual gift they had received, which Paul taught about in chapter 12 of Romans. Where he says, for as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. 
Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Every member of the body of Christ is gifted by the Spirit. Therefore, every member ought to minister out of that gift for the good of the church and the glory of Christ. The members are the ministers of the church. Which brings us back full circle to where we began last week. With the Roman Catholic Church of the 16th century at the dawn of the Protestant Reformation. One of the points that Luther hammered home again and again and again in the days of the Reformation was that the believers are the New Testament priesthood. The priesthood of the believer is a phrase which he coined. In other words, the priests, the ministers of the church are not a a special caste of saints who receive special grace to perform ministry that nobody else in the church can perform. Rather, in the New Covenant era, according to 1 Peter 2.9, you're the priests of the New Covenant. You are. The members of the church, the believers, the holy nation, they are a kingdom of priests to our God. That's why every believer is gifted for ministry, and every believer is commissioned to minister the gospel in the name of Christ. So one of the battle cries of the Reformation was, Set the people free. Give them a Bible. Put the keys of the kingdom in their hands and set them free to do the work of the ministry. Send them out to speak the gospel, to forgive sins in the name of Christ. Send them out to serve with the hands of Christ amongst the poor and the needy. Send the people forth and let them minister. And that's still what a true church does today. So over the last two weeks, we've looked behind this seemingly random list of names and greetings, and we've seen a church, a real church, a true church, a powerful church, a beautiful church, located in the city of Rome around the year 57 AD, a a church that was filled with ordinary sinners, redeemed and transformed by an extraordinary gospel. A church ready to live and to die for the sake of Christ. And we've seen that what marked this true church as a true church was its simple structure, its worthy women, its courageous conviction, its home-centered hospitality, the ardent affection that they shared for one another, its demographic diversity, and its member ministry. So the question I want to close with this morning is if Paul were to write a letter to First Baptist Nixa, would he say the same kind of things about us? Would someone reading that letter 2,000 years from now be able to look behind the names and the greetings and find a church of faithful saints committed to the simplicity of the New Testament model, 
in which both men and women are ministering in their unique gifts and in the power of the Holy Spirit, living out a Christ-centered love for one another that transcends cultural boundaries and transcends church walls, a church ready to live and to die for the sake of the gospel. Is that the kind of church that Paul would find? And is that the kind of church that he would describe in a letter written to us? And my prayer is that God would make it so to his everlasting glory.